Volume 2, Book 4, Chapters 25 to 34 of The Life of Apollonius of Tiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linny. The Life of Apollonius of Tiana by Flavius Philostratus. Translated by F. C. Conybeare. Volume 1, Book 4, Chapters 25 to 34. Nero was opposed to philosophy, because he suspected its devotees of being addicted to magic, and of being diviners in disguise. And at last the philosopher's mantle brought its wearers before the lockwards, as if it were a mere cloak of the divining art. I will not mention other names, but Musonius of Babylon, a man only second to Apollonius, was thrown into prison for the crime of being a sage, and there lay in danger of death. And he would have died for all his jailer cared, if it had not been for the strength of his constitution. Such was the condition in which philosophy stood when Apollonius was approaching Rome, and, at a distance of one hundred and twenty stadia from its walls, he met Philolaus of Citium in the neighborhood of the grove of Aricia. Now, Philolaus was a polished speaker, but too soft to bear any hardships. He had quitted Rome, and was virtually a fugitive, and any philosopher he met with he urged to take the same course. He accordingly addressed himself to Apollonius, and urged him to give way to circumstances, and not to proceed to Rome, where philosophy was in such bad order. And he related to him what was taking place there, and, as he did so, he kept turning his head round, lest anybody should be listening behind him to what he said. "'And you,' he said, "'after attaching this band of philosophers to yourself, a thing which will bring you into suspicion and odium, are on your way thither, knowing nothing of the officers set over the gates by Nero, who will arrest you and them, before ever you enter or get inside.' "'And what?' said Apollonius. "'Oh, Philolaus, are the occupations of the autocrats said to be?' He drives a chariot, said the other, in public, and he comes forward on the boards of the Roman theatres, and sings songs, and he lives with gladiators, and he himself fights as one, and slays his men. Apollonius therefore replied and said, Then, my dear fellow, do you think that there can be any better spectacle for men of education than to see an emperor thus demeaning himself? For... If, in Plato's opinion, man is the sport of the gods, what a theme we have here, provided for philosophers, by an emperor who makes himself the sport of men, and sets himself to delight the common herd with the spectacle of his own shame. Yes, by Zeus, said Philolaus, if you could do it with impunity. But if you are going to lose your life by going thither, and if Nero is going to devour you alive before you see anything of what he does, your interview with him will cost you dear, much dearer than it ever cost Ulysses to visit the Cyclops in his home. Though he lost many of his comrades in his anxiety to see him, and because he yielded to the temptation of beholding so cruel a monster. But Apollonius said, So you think that this ruler is less blinded than the Cyclops? if he commits such crimes? And Philolaus answered, Let him do what he likes, 
but do you at least save these your companions and these words he uttered in a loud voice and with an air of weeping whereupon damis conceived a fear lest the younger men of his party should be amanned by the craven terrors of philolaus so he took aside apollonius and said this hare with all his panicky fears will ruin these young men and fill them with discouragement but apollonius said well of all the blessings which have been vouchsafed to me by the gods often without my praying for them at all this present one i may say is the greatest that i have ever enjoyed for chance has thrown in my way a touchstone to test these young men of a kind to prove most thoroughly which of them are philosophers and which of them prefer some other line of conduct than that of the philosopher and in fact the knock-kneed among them were detected in no time for under the influence of what philolaus said some of them declared that they were ill others that they had no provisions for the journey others that they were homesick others that they had been deterred by dreams and in the result the thirty-four companions of apollonius who were willing to accompany him to rome were reduced to eight and all the rest ran away from nero and philosophy both at once and took to their heels he therefore assembled those who were left among whom were menippus who had foregathered with the hobgoblin and the scoridus the egyptian and damis and said to them i shall not scold those who have abandoned us but i shall rather praise you for being men like myself nor shall i think a man a coward because he has disappeared out of dread of nero but any one who rises superior to such fear i will hail as a philosopher and i will teach him all i know i think then that we ought first of all to pray to the gods who have suggested these different courses to you and to them and then we ought to solicit their direction and guidance for we are not remote from the gods even in a foreign country we must then march forward to the city which is mistress of so much of the inhabited world but how can anybody go forward thither unless the gods are leading him the more so because a tyranny has been established in this city so harsh and cruel that it does not suffer men to be wise and let not any one think it foolish so to venture along a path which many philosophers are fleeing from for in the first place i do not esteem any human agency so formidable that a wise man can ever be terrified by it and in the second place i would not urge upon you the pursuit of bravery unless it were attended with danger moreover in traversing more of the earth than any man yet has visited i have seen hosts of arabian and indian wild beasts but as to this wild beast which the many call a tyrant i know not either how many heads he has nor whether he has crooked talons and jagged teeth in any case though this monster is said to be a social beast and to inhabit the heart of cities yet he is so much wilder and fiercer in his disposition than animals of the mountain and forest that whereas you can sometimes tame and alter the character of lions and leopards by flattering them this one is only roused to greater cruelty than before by those who stroke him so that he rends and devours all alike 
and again there is no animal anyhow of which you can say that it ever devours its own mother but nero is gorged with such quarry it is true perhaps that the same crime was committed in the case of orestes and alcmean but they had some excuse for their deeds in that the father of the one was murdered by his own wife while the others had been sold for a necklace this man however has murdered the very mother to whom he owes his adoption by the aged emperor and his inheritance of the empire for he shipwrecked and so slew her close to hand in a vessel built for the express purpose of doing her to death if however any one is disposed to dread nero for these reasons and is led abruptly to forsake philosophy conceiving that it is not safe for him to thwart his evil temper let him know that the quality of inspiring fear really belongs to those who are devoted to temperance and wisdom because they are sure of divine succour but let him snap his fingers at the threats of the proud and insolent as he would at those of drunken men for we regard the latter surely as daft and silly but not as formidable let us then go forward to rome if we are good men and true for to nero's proclamations in which he banishes philosophy we may well oppose the verse of sophocles for in no wise was it zeus who made this proclamation unto me nor the muses either nor apollo the god of eloquence but it may well be that nero himself knows this iambic line for he is they say addicted to tragedy this occasion reminds one of the saying of homer that when warriors are knit together by reason they become as it were a single plume and helmet and a single shield and it seems to me that this very sentiment found its application in regard to these heroes for they were welded together and encouraged by the words of apollonius to die in behalf of their philosophy and strengthened to show themselves superior to those who had run away they accordingly approached the gates of rome and the sentries asked them no questions although they scanned their dress with some curiosity, for the fashion of it was that of religious ascetics, and did not in the least resemble that of beggars. And they put up at an inn close to the gate, and were taking their supper, for it was already eventide, when a drunken fellow, with a far from harsh voice, turned up as it were for a revel. And he was one, it seems, who was in the habit of going round about Rome, singing Nero's songs, and hired for the purpose, and any one who neglected to listen to him, or refused to pay him for his music, he had the right to arrest, for violating Nero's majesty. And he carried a harp, and all the outfit proper for a harpist, and he also had put away in a casket a second-hand string, which others had fastened on their instruments and tuned up before him, and this he said he had purchased off Nero's own lyre for two minus and that he would sell it to no one who was not a first-rate harpist, and fit to contend for the prize at Delphi. He then struck up a prelude, according to his custom, and after performing a short hymn composed by Nero, he added various lays, some out of the story of Aristus, and some from the Antigone, and others from one or another of the tragedies composed by Nero and he proceeded to draw out the airs which Nero was in the habit of murdering by his miserable phrasing and modulations. As they listened, with some indifference, he proceeded to accuse them of violating Nero's majesty, 
and of being enemies of his divine voice, but they paid no attention to him. Then Menippus asked Apollonius how he appreciated these remarks, whereupon he said, How do I appreciate them? Why, just as I did his songs. Let us, however, O Menippus, not take too much offence at his remarks, but let us give him something for his performance, and dismiss him to sacrifice to the muses of Nero. So ended the episode of this poor drunken fool. But at daybreak, Telesinus, one of the consuls, called Apollonius to him, and said, What is this dress which you wear? And he answered, A pure garment, made from no dead matter. And what is your wisdom? An inspiration, answered Apollonius, which teaches men how to pray and sacrifice to the gods. And is there any one, my philosopher, who does not know that already? Many, said the sage, and if there is here and there a man who understands these matters aright, he will be very much improved by hearing from a man wiser than himself that what he knows, he knows for a certainty. When Telesinus heard this, for he was a man fairly disposed to worship and religion, he recognized the sage from the rumors which he had long before heard about him, and though he did not think he need openly ask him his name, in case he wished to conceal his identity from any one, he nevertheless led him on to talk afresh about religion, for he was himself an apt reasoner, and feeling that he was addressing a sage, he asked, What do you pray for when you approach the altars? I, said Apollonius, for my part, pray that justice may prevail, that the laws may not be broken, that the wise may continue to be poor, but that others may be rich, as long as they are so without fraud. Then, said the other, when you ask for so much, do you think you will get it? Yes, by Zeus, said Apollonius, for I string together all my petitions in a single prayer, and when I reach the altars, this is how I pray. O ye gods, bestow on me whatever is due. If therefore I am of the number of worthy men, I shall obtain more than I asked for. But if the gods rank me among the wicked, then they will send to me the opposite of what I ask. And I shall not blame the gods, because for my demerit I am judged worthy of evil. Telesinus then was greatly struck by these words, and wishing to show him a favor, he said, You may visit all the temples, and written instructions shall be sent by me to the priests who minister in them to admit you and adopt your reforms. And supposing you did not write, said Apollonius, would they not admit me? No, by Zeus, said he, for that is my own office and prerogative. I am glad, said Apollonius, that so generous a man as yourself holds such a high office. But I would like you to know this much, too, about me. I like to live in such temples as are not too closely shut up, and none of the gods object to my presence, for they invite me to share their habitation. So let this liberty, too, be accorded to me, inasmuch as even the barbarians always permitted it. And Telesinus said, the barbarians have more to be proud of in this matter than the Romans, for I would that as much could be said of ourselves. Apollonius accordingly lived in the temples, though he changed them and passed from one to another, and when he was blamed for doing so, he said, Neither do the gods live all their time in heaven, but they take journeys to Ethiopia, as also to Olympus and to Ephesus, 
and I think it a pity that the gods should go roaming around all the nations of men, and yet that men should not be allowed to visit all the gods alike. What is more, though masters would incur no reproach for neglecting slaves, for whom they probably may feel the contempt because they are not good, yet the slaves who did not devote themselves wholly to their masters would be destroyed by them as cursed wretches and chattels hateful to the gods. The result of his discourses about religion was that the gods were worshipped with more zeal, and that men flocked to the temples where he was, in the belief that by doing so they would obtain an increase of divine blessings. And our sages' conversations were so far not objected to, because he held them in public and addressed himself to all men alike. For he did not hover about rich men's doors, nor hang about the mighty, though he welcomed them if they resorted to him, and he talked with them just as much as he did to the common people. Now Demetrius being attracted to Apollonius, as I have said above in my account of the events at Corinth, betook himself subsequently to Rome, and proceeded to court Apollonius at the same time that he launched out against Nero. In consequence, our sage's profession was looked at askance, and he was thought to have set Demetrius on to proceed thus, and the suspicion was increased on the occasion of Nero's completion of the most magnificent gymnasium in Rome. For the auspicious day was being celebrated therein by Nero himself, and the great senate, and all the knights of Rome, when Demetrius made his way into the gymnasium itself, and delivered himself of a philippic against people who bathed, declaring that they enfeebled and polluted themselves, and he showed that such institutions were a useless expense. He was only saved from immediate death as the penalty of such language by the fact that Nero was in extra good voice when he sang on that day, and he sang in the tavern which adjoined the gymnasium, naked except for a girdle round his waist, like any low tapster. Demetrius, however, did not wholly escape the risk which he courted by his language, for Tigellinus, to whom Nero had committed the power of life and death, proceeded to banish him from Rome, on the plea that he had ruined and overthrown the bath by the words he used, and he began to dog the steps of Apollonius secretly, in the hope that he would catch him out too in some compromising utterance. The latter, however, showed no disposition to ridicule the government, nor, on the other hand, did he display any of the anxiety usually felt by those who are on their guard against some danger. He merely continued to discuss, in simple and adequate terms, the topics laid before him. And Telesinus and other persons continued to study philosophy in his company, for, although philosophy was just then in a parlous condition, they did not dream that they would imperil themselves by associating themselves with his studies. Yet he was suspected, as I have said, and the suspicion was intensified by words he uttered in connection with a prodigy. For presently, when there was an eclipse of the sun and a clap of thunder was heard, a thing which very rarely occurs at the moment of an eclipse, he glanced up to heaven and said, There shall be some great event, and there shall not be. Now, at the time, those who heard these words were unable to comprehend their meaning. But on the third day after the eclipse, every one understood what was meant. For while Nero sat at me, a thunderbolt fell on the table, and clove asunder the cup which was in his hands and was close to his lips. 
and the fact that he so narrowly escaped being struck was intended by the words that a great event should happen, and yet should not happen. Tigellinus, when he heard this story, began to dread Apollonius as one who was wise in supernatural matters, and though he felt that he had better not proffer any open charges against him, lest he should incur at his hand some mysterious disaster, nevertheless he used all the eyes with which the government sees to watch Apollonius, whether he was talking or holding his tongue, or sitting down or walking about, and to mark what he ate, and in whose houses, and whether he offered sacrifice or not. Just then a distemper broke out in Rome, called by the physicians influenza, and it was attended, it seems, by coughings, and the voice of speakers was affected by it. Now the temples were full of people, supplicating the gods, because Nero had a swollen throat, and his voice was hoarse. But Apollonius vehemently denounced the folly of the crowd, though without rebuking any one in particular. Nay, he even restrained Menippus, who was irritated by such goings-on, and persuaded him to moderate his indignation, urging him to pardon the gods if they did show pleasure in the minds of buffoons. This utterance was reported to Tigellinus, who immediately sent police to take him to prison, and summoned him to defend himself from the charge of impiety against Nero. And an accuser was retained against him, who had already undone a great many people, and won a number of such Olympic victories. This accuser, too, held in his hands a scroll of paper on which the charge was written out, and he brandished it like a sword against the sage, and declared that it was so sharp that it would slay and ruin him. But when Tigellinus unrolled the scroll, and did not find upon it the trace of a single word or letter, and his eyes fell on a perfectly blank book, he came to the conclusion that he had to do with a demon. And this is said also subsequently to have been the feeling which the mission entertained towards Apollonius. Tigellinus then took his victim apart into a secret tribunal, in which this class of magistrate tries in private the most important charges and having ordered all to leave the court, he plied him with questions, asking who he was. Apollonius gave his father's name and that of his country, and explained his motive in practicing wisdom, declaring that the sole use he made of it was to gain a knowledge of the gods and an understanding of human affairs, for that the difficulty of knowing another man exceeding that of knowing oneself. "'And about the demons,' said Tigellinus, "'and the apparitions of spectres, how, O Apollonius, do you exercise them? In the same way, he answered, as I should murderers and impious men. This was a sarcastic allusion to Tigellinus himself, for he taught and encouraged in Nero every excess of cruelty and wanton violence. And, said the other, could you prophesy if I asked you to? How, said Apollonius, can I, being no prophet? And yet, replied the other. They say that it is you who predicted that some great event would come to pass, and yet not come to pass. Quite true, said Apollonius, is what you heard. But you must not put this down to any prophetic gift, but rather to the wisdom which God reveals to wise men. And, said the other, why are you not afraid of Nero? Because, said Apollonius, the same God who allows him to seem formidable has also granted to me to feel no fear.
"'And what do you think?' said the other. "'About Nero.' And Apollonius answered, "'Much better than you do, "'for you think it dignified for him to sing, "'but I think it dignified in him to keep silent.' Tigellinus was astonished at this, and said, "'You may go, but you must give sureties for your person.' And Apollonius answered, and who can go surety for a body that no one can bind? This answer struck Tigellinus as inspired and above the wit of men, and as he was careful not to fight with a god, he said, You may go wherever you choose, for you are too powerful to be controlled by me. Here, too, is a miracle which Apollonius worked. A girl had died just in the hour of her marriage, and the bridegroom was following her bier, lamenting, as was natural, his marriage left unfulfilled. And the whole of Rome was mourning with him, for the maiden belonged to a consular family. Apollonius, then witnessing their grief, said, Put down the bier, for I will stay the tears that you are shedding for this maiden. And withal he asked what was her name. The crowd, accordingly, thought that he was about to deliver such an oration as is commonly delivered as much to grace the funeral as to stir up lamentation. But he did nothing of the kind, but merely touching her and whispering in secret some spell over her, at once woke up the maiden from her seeming death. And the girl spoke out loud and returned to her father's house, just as Alcestis did when she was brought back to life by Hercules. And the relations of the maiden wanted to present him with the sum of a hundred fifty thousand sesterces, but he said that he would freely present the money to the young lady by way of a dowry. Now, whether he detected some spark of life in her, which those who were nursing her had not noticed, for it is said that, although it was raining at the time, a vapour went up from her face, or whether life was really extinct, and he restored it by the warmth of his touch, is a mysterious problem, which neither I myself nor those who were present could decide. About this time, Musonius lay confined in the dungeons of Nero, a man who they say was unsurpassed in philosophic ability by any one. Now they did not openly converse with one another, because Musonius declined to do so, in order that both their lives might not be endangered. But they carried on a correspondence through Menippus and Domus, who went to and fro the prison. Such of their letters as did not handle great themes I will take no notice of, and only set before my reader the more important ones in which we get glimpses of lofty topics. Apollonius to Mazonius the philosopher, greeting. I would fain come unto you to share your conversation and your lodgings, in the hope of being some use to you, unless indeed you are disinclined to believe that Hercules once released Theseus from hell. Write what you would like me to do. Farewell. Musonius to Apollonius the philosopher sends greeting. For your solicitude in my behalf, I shall never do anything but commend you. But he who has waited patiently to defend himself, and has proved that he has done no wrong, is a true man. Farewell. Apollonius to Musonius, the philosopher, sends greeting. Socrates of Athens, because he refused to be released by his own friends, went before the tribunal and was put to death. Farewell. 
Musonius to Apollonius the philosopher sends greeting. Socrates was put to death, because he would not take the trouble to defend himself. But I shall defend myself. Farewell. When Nero took his departure for Greece, after issuing a proclamation that no one should teach philosophy in public at Rome, Apollonius turned his steps to the western regions of the earth, which they say are bounded by the pillars, because he wished to visit and behold the ebb and flow of the ocean and the city of Gadara, for he had heard something of the love of wisdom entertained by the inhabitants of that country, and of how great an advance they had made in religion, and he was accompanied by all his pupils, who approved no less of the expedition than they did of the sage. End of Volume 1, Book 4, Chapters 35-46